You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. The Bee Gees. The Bee Gees. Once again, the fabulous Bee Gees. The most exciting sound in the world. The biggest grossing album in the history of music. Has the enormous success changed your life? Well, I was speaking to one of my friends the other day, and as he was cleaning my shoes, I said, listen. <laughs> we often thought we were triplets. We have the same sense of humor. We have the same love of the same kind of music. When you've got brothers singing, it's like an instrument that nobody else can buy. Brothers, in general, is a very complicated thing. If we hadn't been brothers, we wouldn't have lasted half an hour. We've heard rumors that the group is splitting up. Would you like to verify those rumors? No. No. We all wanted individual recognition. All three of us did things to each other that I think we're all sorry for. I said, let's make an album in Miami. We had to adopt a new attitude and a new sound. I said, well, why don't we just take a bar out of Night Fever and see if we can make a loop out of it? We were breaking new ground. It was extraordinary. The fever thing happened, that's when everything exploded. I mean, that could very easily have just been a horn line. But instead, their voices were so sick, they were like, nah, we're going to sing it. They were on the first wave of global pop superstardom, if you want to call it that. They've had the top five hits any given week. For those of us at the radio station, we're going to take hostages. How about the Bee Gees? When you become famous, you think everyone loves you and they're going to love you forever. It's not true. We really could not get on the radio, so the whole idea was to write for other people. It was just as important for us to have an artist singing one of our songs and being on the radio as it was for ourselves. Everything we set out to do, we did, against all odds. I can't honestly come to terms with the fact that they're not here anymore. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Friends. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to recap some forgotten entertainment from 2020. That horrendous year 2020, believe it or not, actually had some good stuff sprinkled in, you know, the entertainment field and some turkeys and bad news along the way. I'm going to go over movies, television shows, events that happened that could at least give you a little bit of a second look at stuff that you might have never known had come out, did come out last year, or were thinking about watching last year but never did. I'm going to try to give you that final little push to get you to watch some of these things. So get ready and let's begin. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. 
You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you, always. All right, let's begin with our entertainment items of 2020 that we kind of forgot to talk about or kind of fell through the cracks. But we had a number of things, television, film, that happened this past year that uh, really uh, made a mark on this past year, even though this past year seems to have been one of practically no... (laughs) activity uh, in terms of obviously being able to go to the movies, more or less. Most of it happened on television, streaming services and that sort of of thing. However, I want to go through a few things just because it would be a shame to kind of forget about them and and, and forget that the fact that they actually did come out and they're interesting, some of them anyway, (laughs) are things that might be worth your while. Uh, Let me start off with a television show on Amazon Prime called The Wilds. Now, this is a show that I absolutely heard nothing about. Most of the time when I find something weird, it's because I see it on Facebook or somewhere that I get a a little hint of it. Well, this is a show that completely was out of my radar. The only reason I watched it is when you which I'm sure you guys might encounter this every now and then as you go through your Netflix or your Prime or whatever, and you start scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and you get to the bottom of the barrel, and you start over again, and the same topics keep coming up again, and you're like, well, let me try horror, or let me try sci-fi, let me try this. And it's just amazing the amount of junk that's in there. It, it's, it, it reminds me of... You know, being at uh, the old Blockbuster, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and the movies there, you know, on on the bottom shelf being so horrendous, or the bargain bin, where there's just literally a container of DVDs at Walmart, and they're just garbage movies. Well, it was one of those days where I just could not figure out what I wanted to watch, and for some reason, that little tiny picture icon of this particular and again at the time i wasn't sure if it was a movie or a tv show or whatever and it showed a whole bunch of girls pulling another girl from what looked like to be mud or a hole in the ground or something and it said the wilds and i'm like you know let's see what this is about so you know you click on it and then they start talking about the survivors of an airplane crash stranded on an island And I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, and, you know, mysterious things happen and blah, 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 or something like that. I don't even remember if that's what it said. But I started to think Lost. Oh, my God. Yes, I remember Lost. I used to watch Lost, and I love Lost. I went all the way through with Lost. So I'm like, but this is like a a bunch of teenage girls. So it's like, is this going to be like a Disney version of Stranded on a Deserted Island type of deal? And I'm like, you know what the hell? I've I watched so, so many horrible things. I, I tried so many horrible things on these channels that it's like, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So I started watching it, and 
at first you're like, oh no, this is all the trouble with these girls and the problems they're having at home and this and that or the other. But then you get to the actual event that they arrive on this island and I'm not going to spoil it for you. And this isn't the type of show that I'm doing today where I spend an entire hour on one subject or one show. But man, did this show surprise the crap out of me in terms of it is probably not what anybody expects it to be. It is more adult than most stuff that I've seen. Even though the cast is very young and it's all girls, it is just not what you will expect. And what they do is a very cool, you know, and it's, I think, I don't know, I forget if it's 10 episodes. I think it's 10 or 11, something like that. It's the, these are short seasons when you're dealing with these streamable shows. But what they kind of do is it's 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 a formulaic uh, way where they're showing you them. They're on the island, but then they're showing you some of them being interviewed after being rescued. And they also show you some of them talking about their life before the island. So you get to see their backstory, their current story, and their island story. But there's a big twist within the show that starts to gain traction, I would say maybe a third or a quarter into the show, that really, really throws you for a loop. And this is the kind of show that I hope only goes two seasons, and I wouldn't be surprised if it only goes two seasons because, you know, a lot of these streamable shows, they don't really last that long. They, you know, they're not really long-term kind of shows. But that is one of the things about Lost, I remember, was that it did feel at a certain point like they were just stretching. They were stretching and stretching and stretching. There was a lot of filler and a lot of let's just make something up to keep it going kind of feel. But this show, if it does one more season, because the season finale does not in any shape or form wrap up the first season. So I really hope, and I, I could be wrong, but I think it's been renewed already. I'm not entirely sure. It better be renewed because, oh my God, did it become a thriller, a mystery. A, a, wow. Really, really unusual, if you will. Next up, and once again, no clue how I landed on it. I think it was scrolling on Netflix, you know, the little icons. And I don't remember if it was listed under war films or it was just listed under new. It said Deliberator. And it had a cartoon image of like a World War II looking soldier. So I'm like, what the hell is that? So when I clicked on it, I started reading it. It basically details a couple of major operations during World War II What's unusual is that it's being told in an animated format. But the animated format is really weird because it's it's kind of like a rotoscoping animation. It's a little hard to describe it because it's it's a, it this was shot on film or video or something and then converted to animation. So the people playing the characters are very much alike I assume the real actors because the the way that the animation works is it it just it almost kind of like turns video into animation. But what's really cool about it is that because this is animated, they can then add so much more special effects and scenery and and all kinds of atmospheric effects to make it look way bigger than it would probably was. 
And they do take a number of pretty big, dramatic, important events uh, during World War II. It is very short. It, it was only, I think, like four or five episodes. And I really wish they would do another one. You do get to meet this particular crew. And you kind of see how little by little you start losing some of them. And you get used to them and you get familiar with them. Really unusual how this thing came about and how, it, again, I never heard of it. And, man, I really hope they do another one. Netflix is really good with animated stuff. Every now and then they'll bring something on that you've never seen before. And it's like, whoa, this is weird. But, yeah, this this is one that I definitely – I mean, if you're a World War II, you know, fan in terms of being depicted in film, this is an alternate way of looking at it. And it it's very, very good. It's apparently based on real soldiers, like the real people, uh, specifically one regiment that liberated some of the concentration camps in Dachau. So you get to see that, too, during the last episode. It's really, really wow super crazy powerful episode next up i'm gonna touch upon discovery star trek discovery i'm almost done with the season and i mean i'm not gonna go into super detail in terms of you know episode by episode because again this is not that show for that but overall i would say that this is probably my least favorite season and one of the things they've done on this season is that they brought the show like a thousand years into the future. So the show now is beyond like next generation level timeline. And I couldn't verify for sure. I have a very good idea why they did it. And I think it might have to do with the fan backlash of people not messing with the original timeline. You know, the original because the show takes place before the original show. Personally, I actually liked season one the best, and I liked season two, especially all of the Pike stuff. I'm not crazy about the Mirror Universe. I've never been a fan of the Mirror Universe in any incarnation of Star Trek. So a portion of season two I wasn't too crazy about, but, you know, I'll take it. This season, they do do a little bit of messing with the Mirror Universe, not much, but because this one brings you forward. Yes, it's cool that you get to meet all these new races and all these new conflicts and new problems and, you know, all these new people and stuff. But again, I'll tell you the truth. I prefer that first season. I really like what they did with the whole Klingon thing. So I have no idea where they're going with next season. I don't even know if they confirm the next season, to tell you the truth. But I still like the show, but... I think it lost a little bit of its oomph as they tried to kind of please everybody at the same time. They continue to deliver some good callbacks every now and then, things that kind of connect with very original things, things that connect with very modern things even. They even mentioned something about the Kelvin timeline at one point. So they do acknowledge certain things really, really interestingly. But... We still have uh, Picard coming up, you know, sometime soon. And there's still other shows, the Section 31 show, the Pike show, apparently. And there are other things that are still kind of up in the air that I don't know if they will ever happen having to do with Star Trek. Oh, uh, there was also Lower Decks uh, this year, which was cute. And again, I would love to see more of that. That I, uh, I liked. It was very lighthearted, very lighthearted, harmless, if you will. 
and full of, again, talk about something with tons of references to everything Star Trek. Oh my God, there's so much references to Star Trek in that show that uh, that would be another great one. I hope they continue also. Earlier in the year, <laughs> when I was still going to the movies, I don't, I don't think I ever talked about this. The last movie I saw was The Invisible Man. And man, was that a good movie. <laughs> I was so surprised. For a horror film, it delivered. It delivered. I know it's not supposed to be the universal monster reboot that they were supposed to make. If you guys remember a couple of years ago, they were going to redo all the universal monsters. The mummy with Tom Cruise was supposed to launch this whole thing and it flopped, which means all the other plans were kind of put on hold or completely set apart. I, I think they were going to do most of the classics, but this one technically the invisible man is, a classic monster movie, if you will. But this was a Bloomhouse production, so this was a little different in terms of it didn't have the enormous studio, you know, wow factor. It was a smaller film, but it was an excellent film. Another new take on this particular version of The Invisible Man, and they did it great. You know, the science behind it works in terms of, yeah, that's a good twist on how the ability takes place. And the fact that the guy, you know, is using it for evil purposes makes it even better. Because again, I mean, I know the original one was, was he is technically a, a universal monster. I get that. But I remember I saw, I think it was Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon, which they kind of did a very good job on that one too. And that's a long time ago. That was That was a number of years ago. And I like that one. But this one... They really, really did a good job with some, you know, pretty well-known actors in terms of, you know, not top-level actors, but Elizabeth Moss, she's done a lot of television work, you know, with uh, Mad Men and with The Handmaid's Tale. So that one is definitely a one of these little kind of sleeper horror films. And I wish they would do more of these. I would rather, I would watch... 10 of these over one like The Mummy, where it's almost like they try to turn it into an Avenger, you know, a Marvel film, you know. And I get it. They, everybody wants Pirates of the Caribbean or Marvel or whatever, but sometimes it's better to do it different, smaller, but get it right than to throw so much crazy money at it. Now let's jump over to HBO Max. I recently watched a documentary about the Bee Gees, called How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, directed by Frank Marshall. If you guys know Frank Marshall, he's uh, the other half of Kathleen Kennedy. He's uh, the Marshall Kennedy. They've been producing Spielberg-related material for years, years, decades. He just directed a documentary about the Bee Gees, which I had never seen before. I had never seen any documentaries about the Bee Gees. And Man, was this an absolutely fantastic documentary. I'm a big Bee Gees fan, primarily from the disco era. And I always remember that, yeah, because I do have the, you know, the best of Bee Gees CDs and I, you know, I digitize them. I have them, you know, in my, in my car. I have in my phone, actually. Now I used to have an MP3 player and now they just all sit in my phone and I, they go everywhere I go. But 
I, I do remember that it was like, yeah, I do love all the disco stuff. But then there's this other stuff that it's like, where did this come from? Where I don't remember ever hearing this stuff before. And I, I, and I hadn't. I had not heard them before. Because in my mind, the Bee Gees were a disco band. But their catalog, it is absolutely huge in terms of all these different phases that the band went through. And I never really really, really realize that. Now, it's funny because, you know, I know, for example, you take a group like Pink Floyd and, you know, I love Pink Floyd. And and when you buy a best of Pink Floyd, if you get a like a real big, heavy box collection, very thorough collection of Pink Floyd, and you start to listen to the early Pink Floyd, I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Some of that early stuff is like so different than... The, you know, Wish You Were Here, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, uh, kind of Pink Floyd. Because they were a different band back then. They were, their, their sound was different. Well, guess what? Same thing with the Bee Gees. They were a band that kind of transitioned between almost like four different phases. And disco was only their like third or fourth phase that they went through. There's this whole folky kind of uh, post beatlesque kind of thing where they started and then they moved on into st- stuff that was a little different. And yeah, it's just so strange how their sound kept changing and changing and changing. And right around the time of Saturday Night Fever, which is when that's when I collided with the Bee Gees, basically, how they started experimenting with their sound where they would be singing in a very higher tone. Again, I'm going to get all the the description wrong. You know, I know there's there's proper words for this, for the, for the phonics of of what it is that they're doing. And it's it's a higher tone of singing, but it's a singing where it's almost like one guy is delivering a note and then the other guy takes that note and raises it higher, and the other guy does the same thing. It is the most unusual thing in the world when you really, really understand what's happening with their voices. And I kind of experienced this once. I never got to see them in to perform live in, in, you know, ever, which is very disappointing. But last year, I think it was, or maybe one or two years, I think it was last year, my wife gave me for my birthday, she got us tickets to see a cover band, a Bee Gees cover band. And apparently there's like two or three big, gigantic Bee Gees cover bands going around the country. And this was one of them. And this was one of the best ones. And that's when, you know, I, oh, you know, they start singing all their songs and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, they did that. That's right. That's them. And you get to listen to all these different songs where at the time was like, wow, this is so strange because it's like these songs, it's like something out of the 60s. You know, it's a very 60s kind of sound, very unusual. Late 50s, mid 60s, very early 70s, you know, that kind of stuff. But once you got to that disco era, and again, this is just a cover band. I got to see live how that thing was done with their voices where... One hands off to the other and to the other. They 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 perform this this tonal change between them. Their voices, which is one of the quotes uh, that from the documentary, is that their voices become like musical instruments, where they 
they play off each other with their voices. And I knew a little bit of the story of how when Saturday Night Fever came along, they were just in a spot where they were just starting to dabble with disco. They had one song they put out that kind of triggered them being asked to come and contribute. You know, can you contribute like a couple songs? And next thing you know, they submitted, I think they said something like four, five, or six songs, which more or less made half the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. And I mean, some of the major songs in that movie came directly from them. And one of the things that they talk about uh, not only them, but some of their engineers or other musicians, the drummer, was something that happened, I think was during the making of the song Staying Alive, where their drummer, when it came time to record, couldn't be there. So they had to duplicate his beats, but they couldn't do it for whatever reason with another drummer. So they figured out a way of recording the beats and playing them on a loop, but being able to control the speed of the loop or the tempo of the of, of or the pitch or something by kind of stretching the tape. And and they 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 show you this contraption they come up with at the studio where you have like a reel-to-reel deck, but the second reel is not on the machine. The second reel is hanging on a microphone stand, you know, like 10 feet away. And by lowering it or raising the reel itself, it's creating the click, click, tick, click, 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 that, that, that beat, which is like, in a way, it's a little bit of, now I can't say the beginning of, but the evolution or the contribution of electronic music and using the Moog synthesizers and that kind of stuff And it's like, oh my God, that's exactly what that was. It was an artificial drum, really, that gave the song that needed beat that became, you know, boom, one of these super hits right as disco was starting to go crazy. And then you throw in all the Saturday Night Fever related stuff. And oh my God, they were on fire. They were just completely on fire and they had just kind of uh, sort of reinvented themselves because they, they, like I said before, they went through these periods where their music changed. They were one kind of a band and then they kind of changed to a different kind of band. They also talk a lot about how because they were all brothers, that's the thing that kind of kept the band together where most bands, their infighting kind of rips them to shreds. But the fact that they were brothers not only formed a lot of conflicts between some of them, but is the thing that always had them coming back and continuing, you know, to kind of plow through and do something different and try something different. The other part of this documentary is they really go into how their little brother, Andy Gibb, which is, again, it's so cool that this concert I went to see, uh, they play a couple of Andy Gibb songs and how, even though Andy Gibb was a separate artist, they do talk about how the plan all along, or the plan at the time, was to eventually have Andy join the group, the band. He started doing his own thing, he had a couple of hits here or there, but he got involved with drugs, and things went haywire, and he died. 
and it just completely, completely devastated them. And you can kind of tell by that documentary how painful that was. Post-disco, because disco really, when disco hit it big, it only lasted a couple of years. They talk about this big backlash against disco that was created for many different reasons. People wanted disco. There were places to, to play disco. Disco came out of a certain demographic that was negatively thought of in terms of it coming from a lot of the the gay culture, the discotheques of the time, and it kind of being seen in a, as an, in a negative way, even though it is, you know, being played everywhere, people want to listen to it. But they talk about these uh, this thing that happened at a stadium in, in New York City. I remember, I think, I hearing about it. Uh, where they had a come burn your, you know, come burn some disco songs type, the disco records, come break, where people ended up rioting and they had to kind of arrest people and close the stadium down because people started going crazy, you know, burning records and that sort of thing and smashing, rioting, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff associated with an anti-disco movement type of thing. But anyway, that basically ended the disco era, not only in general, but again, music was changing once again, and they had to kind of change with it too. And what they moved into next was not as successful as before, but they did then go into a songwriting kind of career where they would write songs for other people. And they, you know, people like Barbara Streisand and other, you know, top talent, where that's how they kind of concluded, you know, their their long career, you know, the fourth phase or fourth or fifth phase of their career, uh, more as songwriters and contributors than as, you know, the Bee Gees. And then by the end, the only person really interviewed during the documentary who still around is, is Barry Gibb. And it's a very, very emotional, you know, from the heart kind of stories that he's bringing us into. And uh, he basically says that, you know, he would give everything, all the money, all the success, everything that they got, he would give it up in a second if he could have his brothers back. And oh my God, that is just so, it is such a heartbreaking finale to it. But apparently he is, you know, trying to go on tour again uh, just by himself because he, again, he doesn't have his brothers anymore. But it's a great, again, I cannot recommend that documentary enough and, you know, in my particular case, I, I I got to learn so much more about them that I didn't know before, about how tight you know the whole family unit was. Anyway, from there, let's jump to Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, well, not, not all the things that I got to see this year blew me away. There's definitely diamonds in the rough, but there's plenty of rough. And and one of the rough. And normally, you know what? I would normally just like not want to talk about all the bad things. But just like on a previous episode, I talked about Tenant because I was so disappointed by Tenant. Wonder Woman 1984, I have the same problem. There was a lot of hype about this movie. I love the first one. The early reviews were somewhat positive, I believe, uh, for this movie. So I gave it a shot. I'm going to tell you that the best thing I loved about this movie was the opening, the beginning. The whole competition when she's a little girl, I love that whole sequence. I love that entire thing. It's a little over the top. I understand that. 
But once we get into the actual story and once we establish who we're dealing with here, what is the conflict? Who are the bad guys? That's when it kind of starts falling apart for me. And not only, well, that's not true. It started falling apart from the beginning. The first film has some comedic touches. No, don't get me wrong. And the first film is also something that you get with a lot of these superhero films that not all of them, but a lot of them, where it's the, the fish out of water thing. So we got to see Diana, you know, interacting with modern, modern, at the time, modern London, you know, and she's getting to know her way around the world. Here, they use Steve Trevor as the hook of him all of a sudden being in 1984 and him adjusting to 1984. Now, the film, and and I've, I've heard many reviews, and it's funny because the more reviews I hear, the more that I dislike the film <laughs> because they point out so many things that it's like, yeah, why did they do that? For me, from the beginning, there's an entire action sequence where she's at a mall and there's there's some jewelry heist, robbery that's taking place and she breaks up the, the heist and captures all the robbers and blah, blah, blah. But the way these characters are acting, they're almost like TV Batman Adam West villains. They are over the top, super, super like slapsticky kind of villains. I just don't understand what they were going for with these villains. Now, granted, these are just the opening villains, but it's it's a major action sequence. So, okay, forget it. Let's just forget all about that. The bad guy here is Maxwell Lord, I think his name is. Again, I'm not very familiar with the this particular bad guy, but I basically, from what I understand, his power is he can grant wishes somehow. I don't know how, originally. But in the movie, it has to do with a certain artifact that he is able to capture and use and try to conquer the world type of BS. But then you also have this kind of nerdy, awkward history museum person, which is uh, Kristen Wiig's character, who is granted a wish and she gets more confident and she gets more beautiful looking and she gets more aggressive and eventually she becomes Cheetah, which is again, another classical bad guy, I guess. But the more you think about it, the the more ridiculous that this story is, because it's kind of like you get to a point where like almost everybody in the world is making wishes and getting those wishes is granted. Diana's wish is Steve Trevor. So Steve Trevor in this movie, spoiler alert, big spoiler alert, he is there, but he's not really there. He's there as a result of a wish. So, and and he's inhabiting the body of another person that exists. So it's like, well, what's the point? What's the point of him inhabiting a body? If you're just creating wishes, then boom, he's there. Bing, bam. No, no, no need to inhabit another body, right? What? It, it just doesn't. It's just weird how how they did that. There were some good things in the movie that I liked. Like I said, I like the opening scene. The action sequences are they're kind of good. I mean, they're very actiony sequence. You know, exciting. There's a scene where they kind of explain the invisible jet. How they explain it, 
it's okay. I'll take it. You know, I'll take whatever I can get. But as a whole, the Maxwell Lord with his son and he's trying to grant these wishes and he's always screwing things up and he's getting crazier and crazier and he's getting sick. And it's like, oh, my God, it was just so convoluted. This is not this is not Wonder Woman one. This is a different type of flavor. I don't understand what they were trying to do here, to tell you the truth. I don't know if it's because they had multiple writers I don't know if this is the studio being heavy-handed and demanding certain things. I don't know if it's the director trying something different. I don't know. All I know is that it did not have the feel of the first film. The first film was a little more serious. The first film, when Diana is fighting in the first film, it's like serious, deadly kind of stuff. When she's Wonder Woman, you know, it's very serious. Here, it's like not very serious and it's so outrageous again you're dealing with somebody who's just making wishes and just about anything that conceivably could happen happens in this film because you're dealing with wishes there are no limits there are no there's no cap on anything so i was very disappointed again i am glad i didn't see it in the movie theater i'm glad i got to watch it at home for free i don't really need to see it again there is a stinger at the end, uh, mid credit scene. Uh, spoiler alert once again. Linda Carter shows up as a character that is referred to earlier in the film. And she's kind of like winking at the camera kind of deal. And it's like, oh, okay, that's cute. But what's the point? You could have used her in a more meaningful way. This felt like a like a little present, like a little candy, <laughs> an after dinner mint that somebody gives you. It's it. I don't know. I just don't understand. Yeah, very disappointing. Uh, another very disappointing big film that, like Tenant, that the only reason I need to talk about it was because of the fact that I was so eagerly waiting for this film. Let's jump forward to. The Haunting of Bly Manor. This is the second now in a series of haunting off Netflix series. This is the second season, I guess the second series. Different mansion. Completely different than the previous one. Than the, was it the Haunted Hill? Was that? The, yeah, I think Haunted Hill was the first one. Uh, Hill Manor. Hill Manor. Or, yeah, something like that. Anyway, they did a second one. Uh, some of the same actors came back, playing different roles, of course. Different scenario, different mythology of how the haunting takes place. This one, way more than the last one, is a love story. And it's a very, very involved love story because it affects so many different people in so many different ways. I'm going to say it didn't have as much of a creep factor as the first one, as, you know, evil creepiness. But... There are some crazy, crazy things going on in this one, but this one is so much more tied to a love story that I think they did a good job. I wish they would do another one. I could have swore I heard something that I don't know if they're going to do another another season of it, but I, I really wish they would. I don't even know if there are any more other that they can replicate or continue in a, you know, a series of traditional stories. Would they do the haunting of the Amityville house? Is that where you go next after this? Or are there other more traditional, you know, haunted house stories that they could they could jump on? I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but I would love to see that sort of thing. 
Another movie that I saw earlier in the year, and again, I got it from, I think I got it from Stuckman, Chris Stuckman's uh, movie reviews that he does on YouTube, is a movie called Crawl, which normally, and, and you never know these things, it's, it's just that there's so much stuff out there. If I were to see, like, the description of this film, you know, on the Netflix uh, selections, I would probably just scroll right by it, because I'd be like, what is this crap? It's just another stupid, you know, crazy killer animal story. But because in this particular case, this was recommended by him, and he's got a pretty—he's a pretty artsy guy in terms of he's a, you know I know he's a, he's a filmmaker. He's trying to make a career, you know. He's trying to get in the business, and in the process, he's, he talks about film, reviews a lot of things, and so far, a lot of his recommendations have been pretty good. So you know, I said, all right, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Can people, you know, can somebody make a good? you know, monster animal movie type of deal. You know, how do you do a, how do you how do you make a hook on that? Now, this was called Crawl because it has to do with alligators. And if you think of alligators, I mean again, if you think of sharks, Jaws is the first one on the list. Okay, fine, got it. And just about every animal or every mammal or every fish or whatever you want to call it has a movie of it. <laughs> there's piranha movie, there's an orca movie, there's a octopus, you know, tentacles. You know, every conceivably crazy animal out there has gotten its own movie. And as far as crocodiles go, alligator, I remember that 1970 whatever or 81 or 80 something like that film with the giant alligator that's, you know, going through the town eating people, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. So this time around, this is a movie about a hurricane that's heading towards Florida. And uh, a girl that goes to school, she's in college, she's a swimmer, wants to check on her dad because he lives closer to the to the water, closer to the shore. And, you know, they haven't, I guess they haven't been speaking in too long. And there's another sister that, that you know, that, that they're, everybody's kind of separated from each other. So she goes down to check up on his dad. And realizes that uh, his dad's not at home. So then she's like, well, where is he? So she goes to another location, like a, a home closer to the water than his normal home. And she can't find him, can't find him. And then all of a sudden realizes, because she tries calling his phone, and she hears it coming from the basement. He's somewhere in the basement. Now, the problem is the basement's already taking in water because the flood is coming. You know, the, the, the hurricane... They're in the beginning of a hurricane. The water level is rising. Water is overflowing now already, you know, into the house. But something happened where his father was in the basement and he, I forget exactly, something fell on him and he got trapped in the basement. And as the water starts to rise and she's trying to get him out of there, because of this flooding problem, alligators start coming in. So you're not dealing with a monster alligator you know this isn't jaws these are just normal crazy big alligators <laughs> typical florida kind of alligators i guess but there are some big ones so throughout the movie you get these sequences where they're trying to get away from the alligators and the alligators are getting closer to them there's some people i think they're if i remember right, i think they're looting nearby and the alligators come after them. Then there's cops that come to try to rescue them. The alligators come after them. And it, it gets to the point where, okay, the water is just insanely high. And now they got to get like out of the house and 
not only can they they have well they have no way of escaping because the the cars are all underwater now they have no way of getting out but the water is rising higher and higher like you're talking about one two story homes where it, it gets really really tense and horrific as to they're trying you know as they're fighting these alligators it's a really really good movie and it's like wow this is again like the invisible man here's another movie that they pull it off they do a great job you know within the scope of what they're trying to do the effects are very good and it's a very satisfying quiet little movie that's just perfect especially for this times where you know you're we're not we're not getting at least as far as i'm concerned we're not getting these blockbustery kind of great films but we're getting these smaller Good, really good films instead. Well, speaking of blockbustery, big, gigantic films, they just put out Francis Ford Coppola re-edited his Godfather 3 film from 1990, good Lord, I don't know, 90, was it? 91, 92, something like that, on Blu-ray, called Coda, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Colleone. I got this. I watched it with my son. We actually prepped for it by watching all the Godfather films in order. We did one. It took us like two nights to go through one. It took us like two more nights to go through two. And then another two nights to go through three. Overall, I'm going to say three is still the weakest of all the films. Three looks different to me. One and two look the most alike in terms of the quality the color palettes, just the general tone and mood of the film. And three always got the uh, the short end of the stick. It is a little weaker. However, three is good because it does conclude and tell you the end of the story. And as far as the difference between this particular cut of the film, as opposed to the one they released in the theater, there is not much of a difference in terms of what happens, in terms of who lives and who dies, it's still all there. Except for one very minor detail. And, and again, we're, we're spoiling a lot of things today because I want to talk about these things. With The Godfather 3, one of the things that noticeably was changed was that the film starts with the, the guy from the Vatican asking Michael for that favor. That he needs to get bailed out of this money issue they're having at the Vatican. From what I understand and from what I remember, the original cut of the film had that happen a little later in the story. But what Coppola did is he purposely put it in the beginning to match the tone of the first film. The first film starts with a guy groveling to, you know, to Vito Corleone about what they did to his daughter and you got to come and help me and I need your help and blah, blah, blah. And that's exactly the situation Michael is in now in this third film. In this third film, as, as you guys might remember... He is trying to go legit. He's trying to kind of buy his way out of all the crap that he's done, you know, his entire life. But in the process, you always, you know, you still kind of are in the situation where it's not like he's kind of like leaving the business. He's leaving the business, but he's opening up another business that is major, major, major money involved and just as dangerous as you know, his crime family. In this movie, you do get introduced to new characters. You have his daughter introduced as a central figure. You have Sonny's kid, his illegitimate kid, as the, the new hothead 
you know, in the movie. And again, I can't go really deep into it, but the other big change in the movie, in the original film, at the end, you do see Michael, again, spoiler alert, he is old, very old, because this movie takes place like in the late 70s, 79, 80, something like that. And you do see Michael possibly even later than that because he looks even older and more decrepit just sitting on a chair in somewhere in Italy most likely with a little dog and he's got I think he's got some oranges because you always have the oranges going on here and he's old and he just kind of slumps over his chair and he boom drops dead on the floor the dog even comes around and sniffs him around and it's kind of like a I, I think part of what happened with that scene is that it, it it was a little humorous that the dog just kind of like was all over him kind of weird kind of disrespectful let's say but in this film it ends with him in the chair and you don't see him slump off the chair but you do know he dies because the that's the title of the movie the movie's called the death of michael colleone so it is implied but it does it is different and that's one of that's one of the few things i did notice when i was watching i'm like wait a minute it it went it, you know it faded to black right here, but I thought there was something and I thought it I thought he actually slumped over. He did. They just didn't didn't add it. So I still recommend it if you love the films, unless you're like hate part three so much that you don't even want to think about it. But if you accept part three as part of the saga, it's worth it. It's really worth it, and it's nice to see it. You know, see all these characters again. You know, in a slightly different edited version. Now, speaking of Al Pacino, (laughs) I finally got around watching a movie that had been kind of in the periphery of the Al Pacino resume. This is a movie called Cruising. And what I remember about Cruising is that when I was young and when I started renting films, we didn't have a major rental place. We didn't have a blockbuster nearby. Because this was the beginning of it all. So the only thing you had was was like mom and pop kind of places. And the closest mom and pop kind of place that we had was a place that was a tiny little shop. I'm talking about the size of, uh, I don't know, 10 by 10. A room that was 10 by 10. Tiny. Where they couldn't even display the movies. They had a catalog. And you would just go through the pages of the catalog. And there were a few things on the wall, but the majority of the catalog was in a different room. And you would tell them, I want this movie. So the guy would go into that room, grab the catalog, get the tape, open it up, make sure it's there, close it, put it in a little bag, give you a receipt, boom, and you would go. But I remember there was something a little weird about (laughs) that shop. There was something a little strange about that shop. I don't remember exactly if... They had adult films somewhere. They might have had like a secondary catalog of adult films that you could browse, but I was too young. I was I was too young and I was too embarrassed to even suggest to even look at the catalog to tell you the truth. But I do remember that in, in their display case, because they had a little display, glass display case, there was this picture or, or at least the box art VHS we're talking about here, of Al Pacino in Cruising. And I would always look at that and go, what the hell is that? And I always made the connection that, oh, yeah, they rent adult films here. That's what that is. So I got to stay away from that. 
And for years, I've never tried to see that movie. I kind of try to stay away from it because it was almost kind of like, oh, yeah, this is this is a weird movie that he made when he was young. And I, he kind of doesn't want to talk about it. And he doesn't want to think about it and blah, 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 and whatever. He's like, yes. So, you know what? There's so many other good movies. I don't have to go crazy looking for something that's weird like that. Well, one way or the other, I don't know exactly how, but I I think it's around the time when I was... Uh, uh, watching uh, The Exorcist or reading the book or stuff, something about The Exorcist a couple years ago, where all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, Friedkin did this movie. And it's like, I made, started making the connection. Of, oh my God, that's William Friedkin. So I'm like, well, how bad could it be? This is, you know, the guy who directed The Exorcist, the guy was incredible. And it, I was like, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to see this movie. And everywhere I went, it wasn't uh, streamable anywhere. I couldn't stream it, couldn't stream it, couldn't stream it. Even Netflix, I tried doing a search for it. Okay, I'll just rent the DVD. Not available, not available, not available. Coming soon. All of a it's like, oh, wait a minute, coming soon. Okay, let's see if we can get it. And finally, the movie came. Wow. I am so surprised. Not only am I surprised, but... I understand now why this film was quietly kind of hushed and put on the side. It's a murder mystery thriller. That's the bottom line. It's a crime thriller about a serial killer, let's say, that is targeting the gay community in the early 80s, I believe, 1980. And it is very William Freaking-ish, if you will. It is super dark, super suspenseful. This is also a pre-AIDS movie. So the whole issue of AIDS never really comes up in the movie. But the movie also focuses on a very specific sector of the gay community. So in other words, what could be considered a very stereotypical or a very specifically how should you say, um, sliver of the gay community. You're talking about some very specific sector of the gay community. You're talking about the S&M and the leather bars and that kind of stuff. It's, it's very specific, let's put it that way. And you can tell that by that subject alone, the fact that they're focusing on this in the story, they were getting hammered from everywhere gay groups just the general media the critics this movie was pretty much ripped to shreds all the way through and you can kind of tell that everybody wanted to kind of like move on from this movie once it was done but the movie's actually pretty good but it is brutal it is a brutal 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 movie it's very violent but it's also very sexually explicit, which it almost feels like Friedkin was trying to outdo himself in terms of shock value from The Exorcist. A lot of pretty known names are attached to the film also, which, you you know, uh, if you watch it, obviously Al Pacino's the star, Paul Sarvino, Karen Allen, a lot of these 70s and 80s actors who continue on, you know, to have other roles... Uh, Ed O'Neill. <laughs> it's really, really weird when you see some of these uh, these actors. Where's Remar? James Remar. Really, really unusual. But it's also 
the movie is crazier than it even looks because you get to a point where, and I didn't realize this because I had to watch the extras afterwards because, spoiler alert, here we go again. You get to the point where you have to pay very close attention to who the victims are because then you realize that these victims are not just victims. And let's just leave it at that because there is something else going on in this film that is kind of going above everybody's head. So this is definitely a movie. It's not for the faint of heart. This isn't for young people. No way, no how. This is not a date film. (laughs) This is definitely not a first date film. This is a film for people that are into filmmaking, especially if you're into Friedkin, if you're into Pacino, you know, uh, some hard-hitting, rough films. This one is there, and I think, I think you might like it. Another thing I wanted to mention is, as a result of another horrible 2020-related thing having to do with films and entertainment, is that the El Rey Network has ended. For many of you might not know what the El Rey Network is. It's a cable channel that was started years ago by Robert Rodriguez. Uh, And his goal was basically to get grindhouse kind of geek nerd material on the air and a channel for that sort of thing. And I've never heard of this channel until I got to Florida. I remember I was in Florida visiting my parents and all of a sudden there's an L Ray channel. And I'm like, what the hell is L Ray channel? I put it on and on the weekends it was old Shaw Brothers karate martial art films. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Then during the day it would be repeats of Whatever, Buck Rogers, The A-Team, every conceivable 80s, 70s, you know, repeat kind of shows that you would watch when you're young. That's all they played all day long. And I absolutely love that. I believe even MeTV was another one of these channels that I might have started watching in Jersey and then I continued watching while I got here. Same thing where they do that. But with El Rey, it was really, really geeky, nerdy kind of stuff. It reminded me a lot of the, you know, when I used to go to the Alamo Theater, which theoretically they're still trying to build one in Orlando, hopefully after COVID is over. But, you know, El Rey would have uh, like John Carpenter night and they would just play John Carpenter films or or whatever theme that night was. They would have interviews with famous directors and all kinds of stuff like that. And for financial reasons, they wrapped up and they're done. So that is uh, something that I'm not happy about with what's happened with the channel. The channel, it's funny, It's uh, you can still tune into it and it says this channel has discontinued operations. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, what happened? But yeah, that was a, that was a really sad uh, thing because uh, it was kind of like a, a little geeky, nerdy place that you could still go to without being a traditional, you know, like your typical TV land kind of place where you have Mayberry and Brady Bunch and that kind of stuff. There's tons of channels like that. We have at least three channels. You have your TV land, you have your MeTV, you have H, H something, you have, Ov- I think, Ovation. There's at least four channels that are kind of in that TV land territory. MeTV kind of dips a little also into the sci-fi weird stuff so i I like me tv now i still like me tv and right now it's now the closest thing to this now that 
El Rey has just uh, completely stopped. El Rey had Miami Vice for a while, too. It was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. I used to love it. It's one of these channels you can just put on and just forget about it, just leave it on all day. And, yeah, those karate films, I love those martial arts films. Man, I love that stuff. It reminded me so much of the 80s, of Channel uh, Channel 11, WPIX, and, and Channel 5 on Sunday afternoons. Uh, that's what they would do. They would, all day long, they would just play endless <laughs> martial arts films. But uh, sadly, that's over, and uh, who knows, maybe one day somebody will start up something like that again. But it's a shame, because it's kind of like, it's almost kind of like, you know, G4 and these other channels that used to kind of cater to the geek nerd crowd, but then they kind of went under. But even G4 apparently is considering returning in some shape or form. We'll see if that ever happens. On the television side, I would also add this year's edition, or continuation, if you will, of the History of Horror series uh, on AMC hosted by Eli Roth. It's actually called Eli Roth's History of Horror. This is a continuation of the previous season, and it's also the next chapter, I guess, if you will, of the original History of Science Fiction, James Cameron's History of Science Fiction series from, from a few years ago. Well, I completely forgot the fact that they actually continued the initial run from the year before. And it wasn't until earlier this year that I finally caught up with the 2020 episodes continuing on the horror side. If you guys remember, or if you don't, the first part of this chapter, this horror chapter, had episodes on zombies, slashers. They did two episodes on that. The Demon Inside, okay, possession movies, killer creatures, okay, vampires, and ghost stories. This time around, they got Houses of Hell, Haunted Houses, Monsters, which is kind of like a continuation of killer creatures, I think. Body Horror, that was a nasty one. Chilling Children, that was a good one too. And then Nine Nightmares, where Eli Roth talks about some of... His favorite horror films, modern and old. And I just absolutely love this series. It's very graphic. They show you some real nasty, nasty stuff. Ironically, they won't show you nudity, but the violence, they show you just about everything. It's incredible what they show you on this. I love this series. This reminds me, and I mentioned this once before, of a film I saw back in the early 80s on HBO called... Terror in the Isles, hosted by Donald Pleasance. And in this film, they basically chronicled the history of horror up until, you know, I guess it was somewhere in the early 80s. And it is through this film that I was able to find all these different paths of horror that I wasn't aware of. You know, the classics, the modern stuff that I haven't, I wasn't even touching at the time because I was basically too afraid to go to the movies to go see an R-rated film. You know, films like like Alien, to tell you the truth. I think the first peek I got at Alien was through that film, that, that Terror in the Isles film. Well, here, this is great because, first of all, if you're looking to get a, a, a snapshot of modern horror and classic horror, of course, because they do break it up into chapters, this is a great series to watch because you have something like, I think, like 12 chapters. You know, it's way longer than the other one that I watched. The other one that I watched was probably an hour and a half or something, that Terror in the Isles movie. But this is a more modern one, and they interview very current people involved in the in the genre. 
Uh, so, yes, that is a must-watch series for horror fans. I really wish they would do some more. I mean, I don't know where they could go topic-wise. You know, they, they, they're pretty much exhausting and stretching these topics as much as possible. I don't know if they could do another sci-fi one. Maybe they can do a fantasy one, because the fantasy realm is another world that you could explore. So that's a, that's a cool one they could go into if they were to do this. But I'm very happy they decided to do a, a second season with the horror topic. The last film I want to talk about is a film called Swallow. And it's one that I saw a trailer for it and it completely got me interested in knowing what this is all about. It seems to be something to do with a woman that has this compulsion to eat items. Like small items out of anywhere. Like a marble or, or a little toy or something. Anything she can find. A battery. A needle. Anything. And it has to do with the psychological condition that she's in, in her marriage, in her relation with her in-laws. It is really, really a psychological thriller. And I can't really tell you too much about it. But it is one of these things where it's like, it is not a graphic film. And it's not a splatter film or anything like that, you know. But it's more of psychological. And I would suggest if you want to see something really weird, this is a good place to go. <laughs> because it is so uncomfortable watching this. And it's you're going to be squirming in your seat because of this condition that this woman has. And all the weird things that are happening in her life that drive her to this state that she's in. And how the people around her just don't seem to help, you know, in her situation. But it was really a very, very effective film. So there you have it. I've given you a very long list of good things and not so good things that uh, I got to see this year. Hopefully, I will have some more for you, but they will be more, you know, show-length uh, descriptions or, or chats or discussions, you know, reviews, that sort of thing. But I just wanted to kind of put these out there, you know, before the year, before another year passes and we for completely forget about these things. But just so you know that they, you know, there's a couple of things that you can kind of check off, you know, off your list of if there's nothing to watch hunt for these because they're out there and a lot of this stuff is pretty good all right i hope you guys enjoyed today's show we looked at some forgotten or missed or overlooked entertainment items and films and television and some other stuff that we never really had a chance to do full-blown shows about but this was the perfect vehicle to be able to give you all of these different topics and all of these different media elements in one show I hope you guys are able to pick some of these and run with them because there are some diamonds in the rough. These are definitely diamonds in the rough. And I hope that 2021 is going to be a much better year as far as entertainment goes. And man, do I have to get back into a movie theater <laughs> pretty soon or else I'm going to lose my mind. So on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening and we'll see you soon here at Geekfest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody.
I don't mean to say that what happened wasn't traumatic. To end up where we did, in the middle of nowhere, completely cut off from the lives we left behind. That brings us to the real question, doesn't it? What was so great about the lives we left behind? like everywhere I go, somebody's asking me to meet some kind of expectation. I feel broken. We are stuck here. It's the 21st century. Okay, they will find us. My life is out there a million miles away. There was trauma. But being a teenage girl, that was the real living hell. Death has been hanging over our heads. And yet the only thing I seem to care about is love. Isn't that what we're all afraid of? That we won't be loved? Are we in the actual Bermuda Triangle? Everything about the island feels off. What kind of person sees an island full of lost girls and doesn't send help? Your daughter is stepping back from a very dark precipice. Sometimes I feel guilty that we lied to her. You did that to save her. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. <laughs>